Crowd Scene. You're listening to Crowd Scene, the show about successful crowdfunding campaigns and the people who make them happen. I'm Michael Ogden. And I'm Peter Dean. Have you ever looked at a painting and wondered what would happen if it came to life? What would the portraits say if they could tell their story? That's what the Oscar-winning creators of the movie Loving Vincent had in mind when they decided to make a film about the famous Dutch Impressionist artist Vincent van Gogh. This is no ordinary film, though. The team behind it are creating the world's first feature film where every single frame is an oil painting. So today we're happy to be talking with Ivan McTaggart, the producer of Loving Vincent, to find out more about its unique production and exactly how it got funded. Having already secured a grant for the movie, the team turned to Kickstarter to raise enough to begin production. In 24 days, they raised £53,000, about $75,000 from 800 backers. So let's find out how they did it. Hello there. Is that Ivan? Yeah, speaking. Hi. Oh, good. Hi, Ivan. This is Mike, the American-sounding one. Uh, I'm Peter. I'm Peter, the British normal-voiced one. (laughs) Hi Hi there. (laughs) Glad to be here. So, Ivan, uh, how would you describe this project for someone who hadn't heard of it before? So Loving Vincent is the world's first painted animation feature film. It's 65,000 individual oil paintings uh, making up one feature film telling the story of the world's most famous painter, Vincent van Gogh. That's insane. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's what we do. We, we do. we do brilliant but insane. <laughs> wow. Ivan, you've had a, a big career in film uh, before you came to Loving Vincent. Can you tell us a bit more about your background? Yeah, so I started out in about 1990. Uh, I have worked in various aspects of film financing over that time, uh, mainly business affairs and and financial side. I was head of business affairs for a couple of sales agents. I worked at Baker Street Media Finance at BBC Films, involved in financing a range of British independent movies. And I suppose those I've been most proud of, um, things like Billy Elliot and Moon. um, And then in 2010, I joined up with David Parfit, who is a long-standing Oscar-winning feature film producer who produced Shakespeare in Love and The Madness of King George. And uh, I joined up with him um, in his company, Trademark Films, which we now co-own, and we are both we're producers there. First thing we did together was My Week with Marilyn, which he produced and I executive produced, and we subsequently uh co-produced Parade's End for BBC and HBO um, and we have a slate of feature films and TV dramas including Loving Vincent that we produce and executive produce You are a busy man (laughs) Yes, you're right (laughs) So who pitched this project to you originally? What Can you tell us about how this came to be? Well, I'm the UK co-producer on the project. Myself and, and my business partner, David Parfit, have a company, Trademark Films. Mm-hmm. The, um, the, the originators of the project are um, Hugh Welshman and Dorota Kobiela, and they're the creative brains behind it. Hugh is a, a British producer based in Poland, mm-hmm. and um, Dorota is uh, an animator, Polish animator. And um, Dorota originally had the idea for a, a short animation about Vincent van Gogh mm-hmm. and took it to Hugh. And uh, Hugh, was, Hugh was keen to entice Dorota to come and work in his company and so said well do you know what? I think that there's, there's even more potential in this it could be a feature film and Hugh had been in the UK in 2010 and visited the Royal Academy to go and see an exhibition of Van Gogh's letters not even any of his paintings just the letters mm-hmm. and there were four hour queues to get into that exhibition and and it, it was sold out for its entire run and he suddenly looking at all these people thought my god this the fascination with Van Gogh is just huge. Mm. This is really something we could tap into. So they put together this plan. Um, instead of the sort of slightly mad but but um, realizable plan of doing a 10-minute animation entirely, <laughs> entirely painted, they decided to go for the 90-minute version. And then they came over to the UK. Um, David 
uh, Parfit and I actually had a, a production that we were planning to shoot in Poland. I was looking for a Polish co-producer for that. Through mutual friends, I was introduced to Hugh and we sat down and I, I presented the project to him. We have this thing, we're looking for a Polish co-producer. And in the way of producers, he said to me, yeah, that's all very interesting, but we have this project with this animation project. Hmm. And I said, well, look, let me stop you there. We don't do animation. Hmm. He said, just watch this teaser trailer that we, we've made. And they had made um, a 90-second trailer, which is actually still up on YouTube, and just showing the concept and how it worked and how the paintings were going to come to life and so on. And I sat there and watched this thing mesmerized. And at the end, it was basically, all right, now we do do animation. Where do we sign? Let's go. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> yeah. Did anyone at some point uh, think 60,000 paintings to pull this off is is the impossible? Did Was that a great debate or did you just fly past that? I, Hugh's, a, Hugh's an experienced animator. He won the best short animation Oscar in 2008 for Peter and the Wolf. And mm. so he had taken little models of cats and people and wolves and so on and painstakingly, sort of Ardman style, moved them a millimeter at a time to to make that animation, um, which is quite long. I mean, it's, it's, it's a best short animation, but it's, I'm not sure, it's like maybe half an hour or something like that. Mm. And so... That's just in his DNA. You know, you get a bunch of people together. They all do tiny little things many, many times. And at the end, you have an enormous work of genius. So, <laughs> you know, we at Trademark, we always, we're always looking to do things that are different, that are unique, that somehow move the form on. And so it just kind of spoke to us. And I guess we had a naive trust in Hugh's ability, which has turned out to be, you know, reasonably, reasonably um, well-founded. Hugh's delivered. Yeah, I mean, we're not there yet, but um, he is delivering so far and the, the film is looking fantastic. So yes, I think it was the right decision. Ivan, what is it do you think that fascinates people so much about uh, Van Gogh? Is it just the paintings themselves or his life? What is it? Well, interestingly, when I, I talked to Hugh early on about the project and he said, you know, there have been quite a few films about Vincent van Gogh, famously Lust for Life, um, the Kirk mm -hmm. Douglas movie, where Kirk, Kirk Douglas sort of, uh, you know, rages and cuts off his ear and, and rages at the sky and generally is, <laughs> is mad. And he, he said the thing about van Gogh is that people are interested in him and they're interested in the man that created these incredible paintings. But what they love is the paintings. And so this is the first movie ever that gives people the thing that they actually love. Of the paintings themselves and so we really felt as a result of that that it was um that it, that's the thing that fascinates people it's the it's the range of stars that he has it's the vibrancy it's the immediacy of his painting it's the um i mean in some ways the I, I want to say the madness, but the, but the intensity of the man comes through in, in, in his art. And I think that moves people and it excites people and so um it, it draws them in. Can you tell us a bit about what the story you're telling in Loving Vincent is? Yes. First of all, the idea was to do something which was uh, almost like a documentary. So there are documentaries like Dreams of a Life and The Thin Blue Line, which reconstruct events that couldn't ever have been filmed through the testimony of those people that witnessed the events and, and were there. Mm -hmm. And originally the idea was to do something like that. But we were concerned that there wasn't, uh, there was a sort of notional off-screen interviewer and, and camera crew, a sort of a, an invisible Louis through. Mm -hmm. um, and, but we felt that the dramatic through line wasn't really strong enough to to hold people because we were always mindful that for 10 minutes they'll go, oh my God, look at that, paintings are coming to life. Right. And after <laughs> 10 minutes, they're not going to give a shit anymore. Mm -hmm. they're, they're Hopefully they're immersed in the story and they're going along with it. And, yes. and um, whilst they continue to be moved by the images, that it, it won't sustain 90 minutes on its own. And so we wanted, we, we realized it, it had to be a, a feature film like any other. Mm -hmm. So 
The whole thing is based on meticulous and detailed research. We have um, the support of the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, which is the foremost Van Gogh authority in the world. And um, ha Hugh and Dorota have studied all, all the scholarly tomes on Van Gogh to come up with something which is very authentic. But um, we invented one thing in order to make the story work, which is... Um, so the story starts a year after Van Gogh's death. We're in Arles in the south of France where Van Gogh used to live with um, Postman Roulin, his great friend from Arles. And our central character, played by Douglas Booth in the movie, Armand Roulin, who's Postman Roulin's son. Mm -hmm. And the, the Roulins discover that Vincent has died and... Postman Roulin has a letter that Vincent had posted from Arles to his brother Theo in Paris, which had not been delivered and had come back. And so Postman Roulin says to his son, Armand, you need to take this to the family. You need to take this to Theo. Uh, Vincent has died. They'll want it. Armand, feckless, young, you know, likes drinking and fighting more than delivering letters, uh, <laughs> reluctantly agrees to set off to Paris to go and deliver it. But he finds when he gets there that Theo's dead as well. Theo died six months after Vincent. Huh. And so he goes to Vincent's paint supplier, Per Tangi, to ask him. Mm -hmm. And um, Per Tangi tells him that the one person that he thinks may uh, still be in touch with Vincent's family, uh, remaining family, or his, his um, uh, Theo's wife, Joe is Dr. Gachet, who lives in Auvergne, where Vincent latterly lived and died. And so Armand wow. sets off to Auvergne to try and find Dr. Gachet to deliver the letter to him. So it becomes a journey from character to character, kind of yeah. giving more glimpses of Van Gogh's, or Van Gogh's story. You see, exactly. I, uh, I'm an American, so I kind of was raised as a Vincent Van Gogh yeah. voice. So am I mistaken <laughs> in saying Vincent Van Gogh? Is it Van Gogh? Well, you know, everybody has their own way of saying it. I think that the Dutch are the only ones who can probably lay claim to the correct pronunciation. I'm told it's something like von Hoch, right. but um, I don't think we're going to go with that one. So we, so we'll take our corrupted <laughs> English English pronunciations as they come. So is, um, it, is it kind of a Citizen Kane structure where you're kind of, there's a there's someone following um, a train of people that to, to get a glimpse of a, of a life story? Effectively, yes. That's okay. weird. So as Armand carries on in his quest, he meets all of the people that knew Vincent and crucially the people that Vincent painted. Right. And so uh, that's how we see the paintings come to life uh, on mm -hmm. screen. Mm -hmm. And it's partly told, it, it's partly in, in Armand's present day and all of that is in color uh, and in the style of Van Gogh. And so, But when the people talk about Vincent uh, and his life, we see him in flashback and that's in black and white, which is still painted, but it's simulated archive footage. So okay. it looks it looks different. So it breaks up the visual style of the movie and gives us some some extra variety. So Hugh and Dorota, as the creators of the of the of the film, they can't pull off putting together sixty thousand paintings. How do you then execute that vision? So the way that the way the film is made is that we film it. We filmed it on green screen uh, in Poland and in London, and with with real actors, costumes, props, um, sets, and so on. And then cut the movie together, just like a live action movie. But then we composite onto the green screen, green screen backgrounds. We composite Van Gogh paintings, and then frame by frame, the pictures are projected onto canvas and. A painter hand paints in oils in the style of Van Gogh over each frame. And when a frame has been completed, it's photographed at high resolution. It's about 6K. Mm -hmm. And then the next frame is projected on top. And they then scrape off bits of the paint, move the paint, repaint bits mm. in order to do the next frame. Wow. So, so it means that 
So we have three different painting uh, workshops. So the main one is in Gdansk in Poland, where Hugh and Dorota are based at, at Breakthrough Films. And there's another one in Wroclaw uh, in Poland and another one in Greece. And th- across those three facilities we've got, we will have 95 painters painting uh, and they will have been painting for about a year uh, in total by the time we complete the film. How do you find these 95 painters? Well, we've we've been recruiting people from all over the world. There's there's an absolute fascination with this project. We had uh, on our painting, we had a website to recruit painters, and a little bit of footage was put up there. Some of the painted footage just to show people what the the style of the movie was, and it got picked up on by mm-hmm. uh, social media and and some of the traditional news media, and ended up on Facebook. And across a number of Facebook pages, we've got we've had about 150 million views of that single wow. one minute piece of footage. <laughs> we've been on the uh, we were on Fox News, we were on NBC News, we were on the ITV News at 10. Mm. We're on the BBC One show. We're on the French National News. I think tomorrow we're we're supposed to be in the uh, Sunday uh, day after tomorrow in the Sunday Telegraph. We were we had a page in the Times. It just goes on and on and on. Well, and today the Crowd Scene Show podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is, which is the was the pinnacle of our ambition. We didn't think we'd achieve it, but uh, you made it, here, Ivan. Here we are. Yeah. yeah. Right, so, so very few people make it yeah, make it exactly. to the Crowd Scene Show. So are we talking to a future Oscar winner? Yes, you're talking to. You're, you're, uh, do you know that actually that the galling thing is for me that we're in the best animation category. Uh, if we win the best animation, the producers don't get the Oscar, the director does. And I think that <laughs> I, I think Hugh and Dorota would get the Oscar because it's they're co-directors. Um, but in any event, it's always uh, they they give the Oscar to the director and they give it to um, anybody else who can be shown to have made a substantial contrib- uh, creative contribution to the project or an exceptional creative contribution to the project. Mm. So it will be Hugh and Dorota, but uh, you know I will be there cheering at the sidelines. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, seriously, we have we don't we don't expect to win the Oscar. We hope to win the Oscar, but mm. I think that our chances of nomination at least with a film like this are better than most because yeah you think about the oscar and bafta voters who are who tend to be older art interested um you know uh, aesthetically interested people and every year they're in the animation category they have how to train your dragon 62 and mm-hmm. shrek 14 mm-hmm. and you know god knows what else and this is a movie which is very much more in their natural uh, zone of interest yeah, you're, than, you're than gaming it really <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it's the only reason we did it is, yeah, it's exactly. We're, we're no interest in the subject. Certainly, I mean, in the lead up to talking to you when we speak to friends and family, pretty much everyone had heard about the project in some way um, and felt, you know, kind of invested in it. Um, I'm curious. Which, to, sorry, go on. It's great. It's just great for us. And it's it's unusual as well. With a relatively small independent movie, you don't get that. Mm-hmm. A pal of mine lives in the States. He came over with his wife. They, they recently got married. She's um, general counsel at a big video game company over in the States. And mm-hmm. she said, oh, what do you do? I told her, what are you working on this? She said, oh, my God, I know all about this. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. And that it doesn't it doesn't happen. So, yeah, it's, it's very nice. Do you feel like this film could work or this technique that you're innovating um, could be used for another painter? Or is this really made for Van Gogh? It's It works very well for him. We've, we've thought about whether we might do more afterwards. And there's a possibility. It's going to get pretty tricky if you start doing kind of the, the, the Dutch masters or even uh, the American like, splats of paint. Jackson Pollock. Pollock, yes. Yeah, that would be yeah. a pretty tricky movie, although a pretty trippy movie. 
Well, the thing is, there, there are two specific things about Vincent van Gogh that make his make this work for him. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, the painter has to have had an interesting life. Mm-hmm. There are painters, there are fantastic painters out there, but really there's nothing very interesting to say about them, mm. um, about their lives. And the other thing is they have to have painted the people and the scenes around them. And mm. a lot of painters don't do that. Like Dali's paintings are fantastic, but how are you going to make a story about Dali's life from, from melting clocks and elephants with enormous legs? Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Picasso, likewise, there's, you know, there's, there's, if you imagine trying to make a Picasso movie and trying to bring Picasso's life out from the things that he, he painted, it's very difficult. So that's not to say that painted animation could not be used to tell other stories, hmm. but to do it in the way that we've done it with Van Gogh, where we bring his paintings to life to tell his story, um, there are very few other painters that lend themselves to that treatment. Was it easier teaching animators to paint in the style of Van Gogh or to teach painters how to think in terms of animation? Hugh decided in the end it was better to teach uh, painters to animate than animators to paint. Um, painting, you know, the, the one of the advantages we have is that because we're doing a lot of the painting in Poland and also in Greece, those are two countries which have a very strong tradition in their art schools of craft skills. And so the artists that come out of Polish art school who are painters may have studied painting for seven years and studied the craft of painting for a very long time. So they have very, very good technical skills. And so that's not so, not something that you can, you can teach an animator to do uh, very quickly to that sort of standard. And in fact, the really that what we have to teach them is just the process of moving from one frame to the next that the paintings that they where they do a first frame they are just painting in the way that they know how to paint but with a with a guide template and so they have the majority of the skills that they need so let's talk about crowdfunding ivan uh, yes your background i understand is in traditional feature movie financing Yes. Why did you choose to crowdfund this this movie, or at least part of this movie? The funny thing about this movie is that it is it has had an incredible public response there, and and the demand for material relating to Van Gogh just continues to be uh, enormous and overwhelming. I, early on, one of the statistics I've thrown around a lot is that I looked up fairly early on in the process the um, Google search statistics and found out that 2.7 million people a month search Google worldwide for the phrase Van Gogh. And mm. so there's a there's a really huge public interest in this. And whenever any of our footage goes online, we just people just go go mad for it. You know how people can be online. They don't hold back. If they like something, they really, really like it. And we, and we get that. We get the full brunt of that, which is fantastic. At the same time, when we go to traditional sources of film finance, mm. the people that I've worked with for many years, sales agents, distributors, banks, um, and so on, what they always say in their traditional fashion, whichever words they use to say this, they are saying to you, what movie exactly like this has made a ton of money before? Mm-hmm. And we say there has never been a movie like this ever before, and there probably never will be one again. So I can't give you any comps. You just have to look at it, and you have to look at the public demand. You have to understand that people will go and see this movie. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're, they're not, they haven't, in general, been very comfortable with that. And so we've had a very cautious response from the industry. So the way that we have... Um, the way we found success in in uh, getting the funding together, and this is post crowdfunding, has actually been a lot of it through private individuals. But the reason that we thought of the crowdfunding route was because of that sort of because of that split, because the traditional industry didn't get it, but the public seemed to. Mm-hmm. And what's fantastic about crowdfunding, and what what I what I love about 
all of the different modes of um, direct engagement with your end user these days is is just that that you don't you're not normally in film finance you as the producer you go to um, you're going to a sales agent you have to convince them to convince a distributor to convince a sub distributor to convince the public to like your project. <laughs> We, on the other hand, can go straight to the people, straight to the end user and say, do you like this? And if they say yes, we can we can engage with them. And so it, it really it was it's a film that it was tailor made for crowdfunding, I would say. So is crowdfunding the future of filmmaking? It is a future of filmmaking. I don't think that the, the thing about crowdfunding in, in my admittedly limited experience so far is that. At the moment, as it stands, there's a particular constituency that's naturally drawn to it by, uh, by way of contributors. And so there are certain types of project that seem to fit well with the crowdfunding community and others that don't. And so, you know, Veronica Mars and Zach Braff and so on, they're – the common factor seems to be some kind of counterculture, some kind of outsider mm -hmm. um, perspective. This is in, in film particularly and, and uh, uh, film crowdfunding seems to find favor. And I'm pretty certain that if you had turned up with whatever is the new incarnation of the King's speech mm -hmm. and tried to crowdfund that, it would fail. And so mm. I think that crowdfunding will grow, uh, it will flourish, it will extend. I think the, con the constituency will, will extend. But in a way, it's almost, even though it's been going around, uh, going on for quite some time now, it's still almost like a community of early adopters. Mm -hmm. And early adopters have particular characteristics in terms of what they're interested in, the types of, types of things they're going to back. And so I think that you have to, you've got to have something that appeals to that sort of crowd. And also, you've really, really got to have something that's distinctive that is unlike the other things that they're looking at. And so Anomalisa is very different to anything else they may mm -hmm. look at. Mm -hmm. And so is Loving Vincent. And that was very much in our favor. Pete and I have spoken to guests in the past uh, on the show where they have raised money um, through crowdfunding and then afterwards they can find further investment because they have in a sense proven that there is a, uh, an audience for this. Can you imagine... The scenario where in future studios will say, right, we will back your project, but after you prove that there is a demand for this, kind of the music industry seems to be going that way. I, I think it it could do. Mm -hmm. The future I imagine is that we don't need the studios. I mean, that's the, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm, I, I'm an, mm -hmm. uh, uh, one of those uh, old school outsiders anyway. So <laughs> I, I like that kind of, um, I like the idea that creatives could go straight to their end users and the hell with anybody in between or, or okay, you, you've got to have somebody in between, but if I can have one person in between me, if I can have Indiegogo or Kickstarter in between me and my end user, that's so much better than a whole chain of buffoons who are just making it up. So, <laughs> um, so how long did, I mean, but between, you know, the idea of let's crowdfund this and, and the page going up, how long was that? And what kind of preparation did, did people do to get ready for it? It was an it was a number of months. Um, I can't remember exactly. I mean, Hugh and uh, his business partner Sean Bob Bobbitt um, took the lead on pulling all of that together because they had all of the key creative material at their fingertips. I mean, we were all involved in in putting it together, but they were taking the lead. Uh, it took us a, a number of months to get the whole thing together, uh, maybe four four months, something like that. The other thing is that we we put it up on Kickstarter and um, we set a target and we failed to 
meet that target the first time around. Um, and so the day after we failed to hit our target, we put it up again with a smaller target and then <laughs> and then hit that target. So um, so add an extra month for our our first our first kind of failure, which which was interesting because we were worried that we we thought. You know, we picked our target carefully because we hadn't yet got to the stage where, with the project where there was this enormous public interest that there is now. It was still, you know, quite niche, and we had a community, but it wasn't very big. Um, and we didn't, we didn't want to shoot too high. But in fact, we did, and uh, our worry was that people would go, well, they're losers now. We don't want to back them anymore. But in fact, everybody that had backed us the first time round, we just went back to them and said, sorry, we failed, but here it is again with a lower target and. I think pretty much everybody came back in again. Did you change and, the pitch at all? Or? No, no, it was the same just, exact pitch, just, just the numbers. The number. Same huh. pitch, different number. We, I think we, I think we went for from memory. I think we were going for seventy-five thousand pounds first time round, and we got about forty-five thousand pounds. And so then we went back up and said, right, we want forty-five thousand pounds, and we got fifty-three. So it was, um, it proved not to be anything of an impediment other than adding 30 days to the process. Yeah. So how did you come up with the rewards? I mean, there are quite a few like physical items like uh, yeah. fridge magnets and coasters and T-shirts and things. Yes. Some people say that uh, when you've got to ship products like that that aren't directly related to what you're actually making, it can be a bit of a headache. So was that your experience? Not really. I, I think it depends who you are. If you're, you know, if you're two dudes in your bedroom, then maybe it's a headache. Um, <laughs> between between us and Breakthrough Films, we have people and we have some infrastructure. Not enormous, but we can we, we can do that kind of stuff. And we we're intending to anyway. I mean, there was always the intention we would make merchandise for the film, uh, and we had made some of it already or planned mm. some of it already. So it was really just a it was a timing issue. We we were going to do it. We just did it did it sooner. But I think that what one of the things I think that helps is making things available to well it's the exclusivity it's making things available to people that they could not otherwise get or they yes. could not otherwise get at that particular time mm. and so i i'm i'm always very nonplussed um unenthused by these uh, i don't know just people selling me a dvd in advance or a, or a digital download of something or something that if i just wait i can just get it anyway mm. because then effectively it's like the you know the one pound one pound pledge where you get our undying thanks and your name on our website mm. is sort of it's just a donation isn't it yes. so then if you're buying something that late you can just wait and you can buy later, then it's kind of like a donation or an, an early donation anyway. Mm. But some of the stuff that we were uh, – and we got a mix. Of course, we got things that people are going to be able to get later. But we were trying to, to some extent, create the sense that you, you actually can't get this stuff. Like something that you have, only whatever, 50 people are going to have this and, and that's that. So, Ivan, you're an experienced producer. Uh, was there anything that you did not know going into this that you had to get good at? Well, I think we we had to um, uh, we we had to get our head around it. I mean, your point about the rewards is a good one. That you, I think, it's very easy to go. Uh, you know, of course, we raised fifty three thousand pounds. It's not an enormous amount of money, but it's a useful amount of money for us for development. But of course, we didn't get fifty eight fifty three thousand pounds. We had to, there's reward fulfillment, there's um, tax, there's you know the the Kickstarter deductions and so on. So we just had to get our head around the model and and a sort of I guess a basic cost benefit analysis. That you go, okay, it's going to be this much effort. We might get this amount. Of money but because we were finding the traditional sources of financing not not exactly closed but doors only very slightly ajar um, it, it did make sense for us to do that and so we just had to we had to learn the model and I think we also had to try and engage with the um, 
the mindset of the people that, that were were approaching this, like the people that were going to be backing us. Mm. And one thing that sticks in my mind is it became clear to us, fortunately in advance, that we were going to have to have a, basically a 24-hour response system in place. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our people would be getting would would be looking at this in the states because we were going on to Kickstarter. And so if somebody in California happens to sit down at their computer and look at this at midnight or, or at 10 o'clock at night mm-hmm. and they send a question and we don't answer it straight away, then they'll probably go and back something else. Yeah. So we needed to work out a plan to make sure that 24 hours a day while the campaign was running, there was somebody monitoring to make sure immediately any questions that came up were answered. But I don't, I, I don't feel like the – thing, the thing for me about crowdfunding is that a lot of people talk about it as though it is um, this sort of new and strange form of funding that doesn't fit any of the traditional models. And I don't think that's true at all. It's just a pre-sale. Mm-hmm. All you're doing is selling merchandise to somebody that you would be selling merchandise to anyway, like the traditional stuff, the DVDs, the coasters, the, the T-shirts, whatever it is. They're just things you're selling to them. But normally you can't sell to those people until you've made it. And all you're doing is you're selling it because of the internet. You're selling it to them early. So it's not like selling stuff to people is something that we are unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. We make stuff. We sell it to people. It's just at a different point in the process. So if it's the right project, you would go back to crowdfunding, but not necessarily always. I wish we could do it always. I think the the great thing about crowdfunding is that you uh, and it's not just crowdfunding it's also social media in general is the ability to engage directly with your end users and get direct feedback from your end users mm. and it's a it, you know it can be a poison chalice if you, you if you put together a community that loves what you're doing and you alienate them you've just created this host of enemies that will destroy your destroy mm. your project so you you've got to you've got to be respectful you've got to be careful you've got to know what you're doing and you've got to treat people well but if you can do that as I, going back to this idea that there's a, you, you cut out all of these intermediaries and you speak to the people that care about your project. And what that means to me is when you think about the traditional financing model, if your um, guy or gal in the street wants to go and buy a DVD or go to the cinema and they pay you X amount of money, let's say they pay you £10 for whatever it's going to be, normally that filters through the entire process and everybody takes their cut and you get the square root fuck all from it to, to <laughs> apply to your yes. to, to actually apply to your production cost. If instead you get ten pounds from that person, you take up a pound for manufacturing the thing and manufacturing and sending the thing, and you give Kickstarter whatever seven and a half percent, then it means that you can make a movie for X budget. If your budget was two million pounds, in the traditional model, you might have to do twenty million pounds of box office and DVD sales in order to get your two million pounds back. Mm-hmm. In this model, if you get back three million pounds of sales, you could get your two million pounds back. And the world that I would like to see is one where you can propose a movie and you sell everyone their cinema tickets in advance through crowdfunding. And so you don't have to go through that traditional distribution structure because before you make the movie, you know whether enough people are going to go and see it to justify the cost. And do you have a sense of who your backers are? What I can tell you, an interesting and inspiring story from our crowdfunding um, adventure is that (laughs) When so we raised the the money from Kickstarter in order to put it towards training of the painters, mm. and when we 
difficult through that process and we were starting to raise the money for the film. Of course, we give our Kickstarter back as regular updates and we said in the update, okay, so we're now going out to raise finance for the film and so if any of you invest in film or you know people who invest in film, then we're looking for investors. Two of our backers got in touch with us and one of them said, I'm interested in backing your movie and he made an investment and subsequently came back and made another investment. And between those two investments, he's put in 290,000 euros mm. into our film. Okay. Another guy got back in touch um, and uh, similar, similar kind of thing, uh, also interested in backing the film. He's invested $700,000. So mm. from our 53,000 pounds that we raised on crowdfunding, we have uh, yeah, $700,000 and 290,000 pounds of further investment from these people. One of them was a guy from a tech company in the States who had uh, cashed in, I believe, had a bit of money, was investing in things that he was interested in and just fantastically interested in Van Gogh and loved what we were doing and mm -hmm. wanted to back it. And the other one was a, a very wealthy individual from the States, um, in fact, owns uh, a bit of one of the um, Hollywood talent agencies and you know, he's very, very well connected. A uh, fantastic guy, wonderful supporter of the project, and his wife and his daughter also uh, are involved and love love what we're doing. Mm -hmm. But but you know, wealthy enough um, and interested in in film investment anyway mm -hmm. that he was able to come on board and and do a deal to back the movie. So one of the things that we learned was you you can be slightly disconnected from your constituency when you when you're doing this because they're you know the albeit you're supposedly connected directly with them. You don't meet them, you don't see them, you don't mm -hmm. talk to them, you, you just you have an idea of them. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to have an idea of a sort of bunch of teenagers in their bedrooms going, oh, this is good, I've got $5, I'll buy a coaster. Mm -hmm. But it's an incredibly, di as you'll know, it's an incredibly diverse group of people. Mm -hmm. And um, there are some uh, fascinating, useful, uh, interesting uh, people among your constituency. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's really behooves people to engage fully and, and, and make the most uh, make the most of it because it may of course in our case it was investment but it may also be creative contributors it may be that people can bring connections that mm -hmm. people these are these are people who love what you're doing and so they are they, they can be huge assets and the great thing about that is that these these wealthy individuals that uh, gave you all this money having heard of you on Kickstarter but not through Kickstarter means that you don't have to give Kickstarter seven and a half percent of of yes. <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars. Although I yeah. certainly hope that those I contributors get a, a hat and a t-shirt and a DVD. And a fridge magnet. Yeah, they'll they'll get a lot more than that. And they're you know, they are they are they're investors, they have an equity stake in the film, they they'll recoup their money, they'll they'll get profits, they'll uh, they have credits, um mm. credits on the film and so on, they'll be at premieres. It's uh, mm. we're we're fully engaged with, with those people and they are mm. uh, they're part of our journey now. And as far as I can see, really enjoying it and really continuing to to um to, to be inspired by by what we're doing, which is which is nice. Excellent. So Ivan, what advice do you have for anyone out there who wants to start their own campaign? Can you give us some tips for crowdfunding success? Well, the th I, I guess the things that I picked up from from what we did, I think engagement engagement is key. As I mentioned, we made sure that we had somebody able to answer questions twenty four seven. Um, that we were always there and available to to address what people needed. I think that's really important. I think people forget forget that. Um, it's people make capricious and instantaneous decisions, and if you're not there to help them to do that, then they'll go and back something else. That's a nice idea. Yeah. The other thing I think is that you have to you have to stand out. There are 
so many people now trying to put stuff on Kickstarter and, and Indiegogo and other platforms that I think you have to really ask yourself whether if you didn't know your movie, if you were coming to it as a stranger, if you didn't know your project, and if it was lined up alongside 20 other projects, would somebody look at it and go, that is the one out of those 20 that is unique mm-hmm. for, the, for this reason? And if you can't, if your movie is just generic, it's just like, you know, it's just another iteration of a cop movie or an action movie or a sci-fi movie or whatever it is with, a, with nothing that will specifically connect you to a particular constituency. Mm-hmm then I don't think it'll work. And that could be something in the creative, it could be something in the in the team, it could be in the, the methods you're using to make it, but you've, you've got to find the uniqueness in your project that makes people think they have to back that one and, uh, and no other project. One of the things I think was a real asset to us was the fact that um, Hugh and Dorota had done the 90-second trailer. Mm-hmm. And so rather than us just sitting there and going, here are some painters and look, we're gonna paint, we're gonna make Van Gogh come to life and having a simulation of it or something, They'd actually done it. You could look at this. It was. It's like a movie trailer. I mean, you can see it. It's on. It's on YouTube. If you if you search Loving Vincent on YouTube, you'll find it from 2012. But it looks fantastic. It's got some. It's got music on it. It's properly done. It's Um, a proof of concept. It's a proof of concept. And so, if you don't, and that's again about making something stand out. It's really arresting. That was the thing that convinced Trademark to come on board and and be the UK co-producers of this. Without something like that, mm. the, the competition is pretty fierce. You mentioned that that trailer received 150 million views um, over time. Was there something that uh, the team did to kind of uh, catalyze that? Uh, was it just purely word of mouth? No, the, the that was that was subsequent footage. So the original trailer didn't get anything like that number of views. It was only when we put some of the actual footage from the film uh, with the real actors and so on, and when that when that found its way onto the internet. And this was just a couple of months ago. Okay. Um, that was entirely organic. We did nothing other than accidentally release that um, re- release the release that footage or let it be discovered, mm-hmm. um, which at the time we thought was a mistake. And and but uh, it it had unintended consequences that even though we're nine months into post production, we're still closing the finance for the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, some investors that were considering the project were so blown away by the public response that we got that I think that is what convinced them to to commit and to sign on the dotted line. And we are now fully financed. We have completed the finance. And that was a lot to do with that social media um, explosion that happened. It was entirely organic. We it went up on one Facebook page. People saw it. People shared it. We did literally nothing. And then, as I say, we had NBC News ringing us and ITV News ringing us and The Telegraph and The Times and so on. Nothing. In a way, if I could have done anything, what I would have done is said, could you just wait six months until we're actually releasing the movie so we don't you know, go <laughs> off now? Well, you've got to sustain awareness now for six months, which is a bit of a nightmare. On the other hand, I could be sitting here in six months' time going, why won't anybody pay any attention to this movie? So mm. I, I, I'm not complaining. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice problem to have. Yeah. So people can expect to see Loving Vincent in, in the cinema uh, around Christmas time? Yeah, we we have distributors in place in a number of territories around the world. We're not yet confirmed for the UK and for the US. Uh, We have some screenings of work-in-progress screenings for distributors only at the end of June, um, and we'll be making decisions about what to do shortly after that. But our intention is that the majority of the releases will happen towards the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. Great. Before we wrap up, it's time for guest picks. Uh, This is where our guests tell us about another crowdfunding campaign that they think is worth taking a look at. Ivan, what do you got for us? 
Well, the, the trouble with me is I'm um, I, I like stuff. Where my favorite <laughs> things on crowdfunding campaigns are they're techie things, they're gadgets, they're mm-hmm. um, just just things that some mad dude has invented in his shed <laughs> and everybody goes nuts for. And so there's um, there's one that I saw just recently. It just made me laugh. I didn't even back it, um, <laughs> it but I, I don't think I need it. But I just loved it, which was a jacket called the Borbacks. I don't know if you've seen it. It's forty five thousand nine hundred and sixty percent funded on Indiegogo and it's a it's a travel jacket it's hilarious it's got a built-in eye mask neck pillow earphone holders phone pocket drink <laughs> pockets like it just has everything and it's just these people came up with it and they you know they tried to raise a tiny tiny amount of money um, and ended up with with just millions and I, I I love those stories and I love the ingenuity and and the one that I may back which is another thing mm-hmm. is uh, I'm a I'm a keen cyclist and there is a bike that uh, that, which actually started on Kickstarter and it's now on Indiegogo and it's called the Speedex Leopard. And if you look at it, it's just freaking awesome. So um, that is, I'm afraid nothing creative, really, nothing, no, no, uh, no film stuff, but but gadgets. Those are those are the two that I liked. Yeah, Ivan, we've loved talking to you. Uh, can you leave us with some words of wisdom? Is there a quote that inspires you? Any words to live by? I. There are two that always come into my mind. The first one is stop getting ready. Um, that's mm. the one that I like I, that. Yeah, nice that's and sweet. simple. Always, always remind myself of that. It's very easy to get ready forever and never actually get on with it. So, yeah, right. there's a time for getting ready and there's a time to do shit. So, mm. stop getting ready. And the other one, which is film specific, which somebody said to me once very early on in my career because I worked on the financing side, and I've repeated this a lot, and I always try and remember it is always make sure you're making a film and not filming a deal. It's, mm. it's too easy to be led by the funding and go, well, if we did it this way, we could get this money and we could get that money. It, but this is, it's a creative business. It's a creative endeavor and things stand or fall on their creative quality. So remember, make a film and don't film a deal. That's excellent. Very good. I like that. Ivan, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, where can people go online to find out more about Loving Vincent? Lovingvincent.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on Crowdscene. Uh, it's been great hearing your story, and I can't wait to see this movie. Yeah. We'll post the trailers on uh, on Crowdscene Show, and of course you can see it on YouTube everywhere, but it is uh, phenomenal. It looks gorgeous. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it very much, and I hope you enjoy the movie when it's finished. Oh, I'm sure we will. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, Simon. So you've been listening to Crowdscene, the show about successful crowdfunding campaigns and the people who make them happen. Our big thanks to our guest, Ivan McTaggart, for his time and insights in this episode. To find out more about Loving Vincent, visit lovingvincent.com. And to get in touch or hear about upcoming guests on this podcast, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Crowdscene Show. If you like the podcast and would like us to make more, a great way to support Crowdscene uh, is to write a positive review on iTunes. It just takes a second and helps us reach more listeners. Thanks. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Crowdscene on iTunes or any other podcast app. Thanks also to Kim Bookbinder for the Crowdscene theme music. Check her out at kimbookbinder.com and our friend and audio wizard Jim Fowler at jimfowlermusic.com. So until next time, from Mike, from Pete, thanks for listening.
That's why I call Epic.